Greetings and uh, salutations from our Booth One studios in beautiful downtown Evanston, Illinois. Gary Zabinski here, as always. And uh, may I say that when the moon hits the sky like a big pizza pie, that's Paul Strolley, my guest co-host sitting in the booth with us today. Thank you for taking the time uh, from your busy schedule uh, to fill in at the, well, I call it the co-hot seat. Oh, the Kohatsi. How's that feeling? It feels good. It feels good. I'm I'm happy to be today's ethnic stereotype. Well, Roscoe has yes. it. Roscoe has it well worked does in. It, does it, he? It's you know he's got all the kinks and, and things very, out of it. It's very and, comfortable, but I, I I don't even hope to fill it. I have large shoes to fill. I'm happy to be the stunt Roscoe, if only for a day. Well, uh, frequent listeners to our program will recognize uh, Paul as a guest from past episodes. He is an actor. Writer, producer, and filmmaker living now in Chicago, formerly of L.A., where he co-hosted the radio show State of the Arts for a while, and creator of his one-person play, Straight Up with a Twist, which we talked about uh, some episodes ago about your family and growing up in... uh, in a well, in an Italian family with a, Italian and German, and, so, and so German. as I say, Italian and German, so very passionate in my need to control the world. Right, that's in, my, indeed, <laughs> indeed. Not to do bits, but uh, the other thing was I would always say that I had low self-esteem because being half Italian and half German, all of my ancestors lost World War Two. <laughs> so. <laughs> How proud you must be. What a proud moment. You told me uh, a couple of weeks ago you're working on a sequel. I'm working on something, but it's not a sequel to that. It's a sequel to something else. Is it something you can tell us about? Yeah, well, sort of. The, The Tony and Tina's thing is going so well that I'm working with Maureen Morley, who's a writer, a Chicago writer, worked with the Illegitimate Players for years, and we're working on sort of a antidote to, uh, to Tony and Tina's, uh, Tony and Tina's wedding, and it's uh, can't go into too much detail, but I'll give you the title. It's Donnie and Dottie's divorce. Fantastic. And and, and the Tony and Tina people are all fully behind it. It's really exciting. They they, <laughs> they, they like the premise, and we're going to spend the summer writing it and hopefully launch it in the fall. That sounds great. <laughs> I'm going to get back to Tony and Tina's in a little while because I want to ask you how things are going over okay. there. But a uh, little update: Roscoe's uh, continuing convalescence is going as well as can be expected, according to him and his doctors. Uh, but he's still housebound and unable to stand up to the rigors of recording an episode. Uh, he did purchase a new 4K Ultra HD television, 55 inches, I think, with all the bells and internet whistles, as well as renting a Barco lounger (laughs) so that he can virtually see any movie or TV show that's currently available out there uh, from the comfort of his recliner, which uh, he has positioned, according to him, about five feet from the screen. (laughs) Uh, because the people at the store said, when he said, how, how far is ideally the distance to sit with a 4K television? And they said, sit as close as your eyeballs can stand because the picture is so brilliantly clear. It doesn't matter how far away or how close so you are. So, so I can just see him there. Um, I'm sure he's trying to catch all the Oscar-nominated films as best he can from indoors. And um, we'll be getting to that and his picks and predictions a little bit later in the broadcast. What I wanted to do uh, to start our, our day today, Paul, is uh, do a little Broadway Broadway beat update on what's going on out there. Okay. It's an exciting time in New York. Yeah, there's a lot going on. A lot of stuff. I'm going to hold something up for you, and I want to get your immediate reaction. I just just want you to react. React. Gotcha. Here you go. Okay. Okay. It's it's off-putting. This is Uh, a picture uh, from yesterday's New York Times art section. It's a above-the-fold, almost full above-the-fold of... Glenn Close in the role of Norma Desmond in the recently Sunset. revived Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. The cut-down version directed by our, our pal Lonnie Price. Only our pal because we saw his last movie. <laughs> He's the pal of the show. But it's, it's a frightening picture, and it makes... I, I, it's almost like it's the female version of... Sweeney Todd. Yeah, it's very well. I mean, the whole thing is that she is supposed to be Norma Desmond is supposed to have that sort of like severe look about her. I mean, who was the great? Uh, it was Gloria Swanson, wasn't it? It was. It was. Yeah, with the, the great eyes and that that famous shot of her. You know, my ready for my close up, Mister Demille, and that that look. While it does look like a little nod to that, it's not nearly as 
silent movie grandeur as the as the original. Well, listeners, if you haven't seen it, get on the uh, website at NewYorkTimes.com um, and have a look at uh, Ben Brantley's review of <laughs> Sunset Boulevard yesterday. It's an amazing picture, but she did so very well in these reviews. Uh, I'm, I'm going to read a couple of things for you. He says of her, that outrageous, over-the-top, desperate old lady shedding sanity on the stage of the Palace Theater still has the poetry in her gaze to break every heart. He says Miss Desmond is embodied by Glenn Close, the much-celebrated movie actress, and, you know, she won a Tony for this 22 years ago. Wow. 22 years ago. And what was one of the great stage performances of the 20th century has been reinvented in both terms larger and more intimate that may well guarantee its status as one of the great stage performances of this century, too. Do you think it's possible that she could win the Tony Award again <laughs> for playing the same part 22 That's years a good later? question. I believe that Hugh Brenner did a production toward the end of his life of uh, King and I. Yeah. And I believe that he was the first to win. I have to research it, but I believe he was the first to win the Tony for the same role. Uh, I'll read yep. one more thing from this review. The audacity of this performance is matched by its veracity. Well, that's just Ben Brantley showing off yeah, there. Really is, yeah. uh, this is grand gesture acting, and you'll enjoy this. This is grand <laughs> gesture acting of a singularly sophisticated and disciplined order, one of those rare instances in which more is truly more. <laughs> <laughs> well, she did extremely well. This uh, production opened yesterday. By all accounts, it is, uh, it is a performance not to be missed. Uh, some other things that are exciting uh, coming up in New York, the Bette Midler production of Hello, Dolly with David Hyde Pierce um, starts uh, previews on the 15th of March. That's just in a few weeks from now, uh, and it opens on the 20th of April. Also, The Glass Menagerie uh, has uh, started previews with Sally Field. Lots of uh, lots of older actresses getting some work on Broadway. Uh, well, what's most impressive about that is that she's actually playing the gentleman caller, and I think that that <laughs> is really just shows what a chameleon she, that she is. She's got some range. She does. Yeah, she's playing the gentleman caller actually and Laura at the same time. Wow. So it's sort of you know she's going to have to run back and forth, but I think they're using uh, they're using a lot of multimedia in it, and I think it'll work out well. Blow out your candles, Laura. <laughs> wait, wait till I get over there. <laughs> also, something that I read the other day, The Little Foxes is being revived, and it's going to be in the new Hudson Theater on Broadway. And The, the building looks absolutely spectacular. They did a wonderful job restoring it. Uh, that goes into previews on the 29th of March. Why do I mention The Little Foxes? Huh? Well, Laura Linney... And Cynthia Nixon are starring in it. Oh, wow. And here's, wrong there? here's the catch. Uh, they're playing uh, Regina and Bertie. Bertie is the uh, sister-in-law to Regina, and they're right. all part of the same family. They're going to alternate roles. And it's been, not been announced exactly how they're going to do that, if it's going to be every other performance or twice on Saturday or somebody does this on the weekend. But they're going to switch parts. Wow. That's, you, that's, that's, very, uh, that's very Richard Burton, Peter O'Toole. They used to do that with, when they would do Shakespeare in the West End. They would like, who do you want to play tonight, uh, Romeo or... Juliet. But they would do that. They all knew the, the text so, be, so perfectly that... Yes, everybody would know all everybody else's parts, and you could switch back and forth um, like that. Have you ever been tempted to do that in a play that you no, were in? No, I never, never have. I, just, I, I know that as an actor, I, would, I wouldn't want it to be every other night because I would feel like I couldn't get into the... I, I, I would want it to be like a week on, week off. A lot of the rhythms that you get and, and keeping stuff fresh is born of, you know, at least initially having that. Although, you know, there's a lot to be said for just going out on the ice and just being thrown a new thing and kind, have to, kind you of know, being react in the moment like that. I think it's very, I think it's very brave of Laura Linney and Cynthia Nixon to agree to do that. And they're they're classy actresses, so this isn't like 
going into Chicago, for instance, and right, and, right, and, right. and and just switching parts just for the novelty of it and the tourist attraction of it. I, I, I think they really honestly want to do this and feel that there is going to be some artistic value to seeing them in each other's part. Yeah, it would also be very interesting if one had the wherewithal to see them side by to see the shows back to back. Just oh. to go in and see one and then see the other and just see how the dynamic changes with just a sli- with a different Well, portrayal. they could sell it as sort of like a Nicholas Nickleby show. It would be the sequel to Nicholas Nickleby <laughs> called you? Dimeless Dimeleby. <laughs> <Yeah>. And what <laughs> Sorry, that was horrid. That was. <laughs> so they could do the matinee on Saturday mm-hmm. one way, then you go to dinner and you come back and you see it Saturday night another way. Yeah, I would, I would, I would do that. I would love to do that. Uh, I just think, well, you know, like the two, the two of them. I, I didn't. I was reading about this. I didn't realize the amount of stage credits and stage chops that both of them have. I don't think a lot of people know how much they've trod on the boards in their live theater. Experience. Oh, without question. You yeah. know, Cynthia Nixon was in the original uh, Real Thing, uh, Tom Stoppard's play with, uh, well, the aforementioned Glenn Close and uh, Jeremy Irons. She played his daughter. Another Broadway-related item that I wanted to mention is uh, longtime well, I wouldn't call him second string, but he essentially is the second string uh, critic for the New York Times. Um, uh, Charles Isherwood is resigning and leaving the New York Times. There hasn't been any real description as to why he's going or where he's going, but I've always enjoyed his reviews. He usually tells it like it is. Yeah. He's gotten himself in some trouble over the years for sometimes being a little too pointed. In fact, I think he said something about the last Adam Rapp play that he saw. He said, if, if I have to see one more Adam Rapp play, I think I'm going to start a frozen yogurt shop in Long Island City and give all of this up. He got into some trouble for wow. that. Um, wow. Yeah, whatever you think of Adam Rapp, I think that, well, oh. I think that's a bad rap to slap <laughs> on a playwright. I mean, call the play bad, but, uh, you know, so he got into a little bit of hot water for that <laughs> and, and things like that. But the New York Times has put out a job description and posted it online for this second stringer. Again, second string doesn't really describe it. It's just sort of the second level. It's go. He goes to things that Ben Brantley can't go to. Right. He also covers a lot of off-Broadway. He covers a lot of Chicago theater. He's here all the time for uh, Chicago Shakespeare and Steppenwolf and Goodman shows. Uh, you know, he wrote the reviews uh, for uh, a number of things uh, this past season. But it says the New York Times is seeking a critic to review and write about the vitally important world of theater. And they are seeking a critic with a deep appreciation for plays, musicals, and theater history. But equally important is that this person be able to connect the themes and issues on stage to those of the wider world. It gets a lot better here. (laughs) The writer must be gifted at assessing performances and stagecraft. And I I don't know if if you're thinking about maybe throwing your hat in the ring for this, Paul, but you might be. Uh, But he must be also eager to help readers understand the ideas that drive the work. This is my favorite sentence. While a background writing about theater is a plus, it is not a prerequisite. <laughs> what, what other endeavors as a writer could one possibly have been in that would... Technical manuals. Writing technical manuals for uh, assembly of more complicated IKEA furniture, yeah. I think, is the... I can't believe that. It's yeah. like Captain Obvious. I mean, how many of those things... All of that is is assumed, I would think, that to actually put it down, it, it, it's like a comic... It's like this comic bent to it. It's almost like you're waiting for there to be a payoff. You're waiting for it just like, okay, yeah, okay, this is obvious. Okay, but right. go on. Okay, and yeah, it, this is obvious. Okay, it, but go on. And then, and then nothing. And, and, <laughs> and they want you to send a one-page summary describing how you would approach the job, along with writing samples of published works. <laughs> so that, that would be the plus. That would be the plus if you have that. So you could send in your... Another technical journal, Scotty? <laughs> yes. 
Yes, I did. <laughs> They're looking for someone who will be curious, discerning, open-minded, and energetic about seeking out the emerging voices and talents who are narrating and challenging life as we know it. Well, that's just the New York Times being <laughs> the New York Times. Must be able to convey with wit and emotion what makes plays and musicals important, irreplaceable, and often unmissable. Or how about missable? Yeah, or missable. I mean, wouldn't it be awesome if Adam Rapp applied and got the job? That'd be fantastic. That'd be the greatest thing. Ever. Yeah, and then he started like reviewing Charles Isherwood's life. So. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, His new life as a yogurt shop owner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had tasted that yogurt, and <laughs> I had that. Yogurt I'd, is so derivative. <laughs> I had, I had coconut cream in the late seventies. It was far better than this. <laughs> well, if you know of anybody that has these. <laughs> bizarre qualifications <laughs> in the theater or not in the theater. I, I mean, maybe they're thinking you might write about art or you might write about dance. I, I would think that the, the ideal candidate would be someone who has some cultural writing background about something. But I, I, I could be wrong. You know, Frank Rich was not necessarily a theater guy when they hired yeah. him back in the uh, 80s. He took a lot of heat for that because he also called it like it was, and he closed a lot of Broadway shows with his reviews. It's an interesting job description, and it's a really interesting job. Isherwood might have left because he realized Ben Brantley was never going to leave and he was never going to move up to the top slot. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Don't quote me on that. Uh, and, and please don't write me about that. I, I've always enjoyed him, and I will miss his uh, reviews. But they've got a number of other, like, second and third stringers down the road. It wouldn't surprise me if one of those people who still continues to work for the Times got this she job. Just stepped up, yeah. Yeah, maybe yeah. just stepped up. But they put it out there anyway. I want to jump to... Tony and Tina's wedding for a moment. Oh, sure. And ask you uh, how it's going, first of all. We talked about Tony and Tina's back before it even opened. I think we first talked to you in October when it, you were. It had just opened. You had yeah, just we opened. opened September 22nd. And it was scheduled to run through the holidays. I mean, that yeah. was your hope mm -hmm. that you yeah. would get through Thanksgiving and into the December weeks and have some holiday performances and gear up for a big New Year's bash. Uh, show. Well, here we are in mid-February, right. and it's still going and going strong from what I understand, and you're making it now to Valentine's Day, which is coming up just in a couple of days from yeah, now. Yeah, well, our big, our big Valentine's Day shows are, are today. We Ooh. have two shows today. Um, and right now, we're scheduled to go through the end of April, but off the record, as much as I can, uh, I'd say we're probably about 85 to 90 percent sure that we're going to extend after April and continue through at least through the summer. Well, that would be fantastic. Um, yeah, that's wild. What What are you finding to be the biggest challenges as a as the director and and producer of of the piece as a long running entity? It's not really long running when you consider that we're we're only doing two shows. Like we wouldn't even if this was a New York show, we wouldn't even be through previews yet with the number of performances that we've had because it's only two performances a week, sometimes three. Tony and Tina's is sort of contingent on that. You have to have full houses. The, the audience is the other, are all the other characters. So you don't have a full cast if you don't have a full house. Sure. Uh, and of course, a full house varies anywhere from 120 people to 225 people, depending on how we set up the room. Yeah. So there, there, there haven't really been a lot of challenges presented yet, aside from the fact that the, you know, the actors work very, very hard. And I'm not sure after the end of April... You know, I'm hoping that they'll all want to stay, but we certainly won't bear them any ill will if they just, you know, six months is enough, you know, and want, want to go and do something else. But Has that been the toughest thing to sustain, keeping that cast together, when it's only a couple of shows a week? And uh, I, I, I realize they're not making you know, Glenn Close dollars right. <laughs> for appearing. No. Um, right. has, has they that... are doing far better than than men, most non-union gigs. Oh, so well, that's excellent that. to they're, hear. They were, you know, it can't be an equity show because no. it would be too expensive to be mounted. Uh, 23 people in the cast, a 30-person staff when you consider front of house and kitchen and, and bar and all the other yeah. things. Uh, the two locations and all that. You know, knock on wood a million times, but we really haven't had any significant issues. It's, it's almost exactly the same cast that we started with. 
with, with the exception of a couple of people. Some people have gone, are, are doing other things. Uh, Billy Minchel, who was our father, Mark, he's understudying a show, I believe, at Northlight. And he's coming back when uh, when the Northlight run is over. Oh, I mean, excellent. We, 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 we present that option to the actors, too. If you get something, we have understudies, we have swings, and it uh, gives them an opportunity to go in and cut their teeth with the role and welcome back after you're done, which I don't think a lot of shows do. You know, they're just not willing to sort of take that time to sort of fit people in on the short sure, term. Sure, sure. It's we, awfully nice of you guys to do that. and. It does engender a loyalty it does. Uh, among it does. among the actors yeah. uh, and that cast, and and if there's any show that needs chemistry between the actors, yeah. it's something like a Tony and Tina's wedding. Yeah, I mean, you're never you, you're never down. Yeah. I mean, you're never not on. I have to want to tell you one thing, Gary, real quick, because we're I'm very excited and proud of this. We're actually this is actually happening today at the four o'clock show. We had an online competition for people to send in their tale. If they were not able to have a wedding through any personal, whatever life threw at them, they just weren't able to. So we had a competition because we all of our sponsors got together and we we're giving away a full wedding reception. So we're giving away the reception, we're giving away the bar, we're giving them all their food, we're giving them all the tuxedos, flowers, hairstyling, uh, a double-decker trolley from Chicago Trolley. And uh, the winners are a young couple from uh, a young engaged couple from Lowell, Indiana, who are high school sweethearts. Wow! And they're uh, going to be at the show today, and we're going to present them with their prize. And are, uh, are you doing the ceremony um, in the it church? Will all t- no, will all take place at Chicago Theater Works in the space. the The ceremony will be there, and then the reception will be afterwards. And one hundred percent free for this young couple. What a fantastic idea! Isn't that great? And you said you ran a contest for this. Yeah, just people online would would. It was it was sort of limited because you know you had to be engaged and you had to be willing to have a wedding before the end of April because you know all of our sponsors True. are just like we can't do it when when the full wedding season hits full tilt boogie. We just don't have the time. So they were very, very generous, but they were like, we'll be generous if it happens before the end of April. Did you have anybody apply who tried to scam the deal? We actually did. We you, actually did. We re, had you're someone kidding. Out, no, no, I'm not. We actually had someone. Because a free party is a free party. No, we did. And then one person got on online, and uh, or a couple got online, and they... Um, they said, oh, we want to do this because of, you know, have the wedding that we never had. And it turned out they were already married. And uh, <laughs> there's really only one qualifier for this, is that you just can't be married. That's the only thing you can't be. Oh, so, so they, they were uh, already married and they just wanted to They wanted another party. I wanted a and they weren't party. especially bright about it either, because on their Facebook pages and all that, there were pictures of the wedding that they had already had. Duh. You know, and it was a you know, it was, a, it was, it was sort of a... It's like taking a selfie as you rob the bank. Exactly. Here I am. Exactly. Here with yeah. my Again, yeah. well, they may be so. good candidates for this Donnie and Marie's big divorce. Donnie and Dottie. Donnie, Donnie and, Dottie. and Dottie's divorce. Uh, sorry, yes. Donnie and Marie. That's a whole nother. <laughs> that's a. Uh, that's uh, that's just icky for me to even say. Um, <laughs> Donnie and Dottie's. Yes, they may be candidates for that when you run the contest for be. that. Because be. I'm sure they. Did uh, you not have the divorce that you wanted? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll provide everything that was missing at your previous divorce. Lawyers. Lawyers. Witnesses. <laughs> Headgear. You know. <laughs> Private investigator photographs. Exactly. <laughs> With the circles and arrows and a paragraph on right. the back of each one. Right. And and at the end of it, one of you will be guaranteed to walk out with your pet. Exactly. You know, exactly. One of you or is getting Or at least half it. your pet. I, I read yeah. recently that there's a new law that uh, uh, says that judges may, in fact, take into account um, the well-being of an animal that's part of a, a marriage uh, as they go through divorce proceedings because that, that can get really ugly, you know. What oh, do you want to do, cut the cat in half? People are crazy about their pets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's move on to one of my favorite yearly topics, the Academy Awards. <laughs> I had a long conversation with Roscoe by phone yesterday. Uh, he was... Fatigued by the end, but he managed to get through it all. And I have Roscoe's picks right here in my hand. You do. His actual picks are in my hand. His actual picks. So I've made my selections, and he's made his selections, and we usually uh, talk about them here um, on our broadcast. 
and then we compare our answers to what really happened, and invariably we're never right okay. about almost anything. But I want to get your take on them as well. Now, you're a SAG member. I am. Screen Actors Guild member. Yes. Uh, so you get screeners. I do. Um, I get the little the, DVDs, the DVDs or yes. codes or something, and yeah. you've watched many of these films, so you've mm-hmm. seen the performances uh, and you've seen the films themselves, so you may be a bit more equipped than perhaps Roscoe and I, who have not seen all of them, because we live in Chicago, and as we talked about on a previous episode, it's damn near impossible to see all the films. Yep. Silence was playing across the street for like a week at like 10, 15 at night. <laughs> And that's a that three-hour movie, yeah, yeah. I, I, and I never no. managed to, to get to it, and that I is, don't know how I'm going to find that it That is now. one of the things about L.A., though. It's like you just you can see it 24-7, see the films 24-7, starting like months earlier, too. It's just, especially for the industry people. I may have to move to L.A. for a month next, just for that, just next for year, that. just for February, yeah. kind of like the Turner Classic movies, you know, 31 days of Oscar, <laughs> 31 days of Gary in L.A., watching movies. All right, let's get right to it. Okay. Let's talk about uh, the Best Picture nominees. Now, um, I'm not a big fan of the fact that there are more than five these days, uh, but I understand the economics about that. There are nine this year. I'll mm-hmm. run through them, and I'm going to get your uh, opinion. Arrival, the sort of science fiction film with Amy Adams. Uh, Fences, uh, directed by uh, Denzel Washington. Hacksaw Ridge, directed by Mel Gibson. <laughs> Wouldn't it be a hoot if he won Best Director? I think I, that's the most polite way I don't, to put it. I don't know what would happen. The roof would come off this place. Hell or High Water, Jeff Bridges is in that film. Hidden Figures, uh, about the women who were responsible in some ways for putting a man in nope. space, the yep. first man in space. It's a NASA story. La La Land, enough said about that. Lion with Dev Patel. Manchester by the Sea, the Kenneth Lonergan film. And Moonlight. So those are our pictures. What, in your opinion, Paul, is, uh, is the front runner here? You want to know what I think will win or what I would like to win? Because it is distinctly different, I'll tell you that. Let, 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 let's not equivocate. If there were money on the line here, what would you choose? La La Land, as, and, as best picture. And if there were no money on the line, which would you choose? Fences. Really? Yeah. yeah. I know that Fences will definitely win for best adapted screenplay. There's, when you have August Wilson, and it's August Wilson taking his uh, play and making it into a film... I, I would bet the farm on the best adapted screenplay going to uh, August Wilson. Well, as we're talking about that, we'll just take these out of order then. Hmm. Best adapted screenplay. I didn't mean screenplay. to jump ahead. I'm sorry. I just, no, no, best related. adapted screenplay. I'll go back to best picture in a moment. Best adapted screenplay. Again, Arrival, uh, Fences, as you mentioned, Hidden Figures, Lion, and Moonlight. Hmm. And you're saying August Wilson uh, for Fences. Posthumously for Fences, yes. You don't normally see films with dialogue that crackles like that, and you really realize that it's because you're seeing a Pulitzer Prize-winning play mm-hmm. on the screen, and it's all yeah. been just honored and respected. And uh, well, let me astounding. let me tell you what uh, Roscoe chose in each of those categories. He is going with a very dark horse for Best Picture. He's picking Hidden Figures. Okay. Yeah. And uh, in the best screenplay uh, category, he's picking Moonlight. I am also picking Moonlight in that category, but I am taking Manchester by the Sea for Best Picture. So we've got three different answers for Best Picture. That's which my is that's my second strange. for, man, for Manchester best by the yeah. Sea. Yeah. Uh, all right, I'm marking these down because our next episode, we are definitely going to review these, and um, you know there may be some wonderful parting gifts for the person who really won. could possibly be. Really, yeah. I'm always up for a parting gift. Uh, It could be something like fresh fruit, as we've (laughs) talked about. All right, let's move on to best director. There's some wonderful directors here. As I mentioned uh, a minute ago, Mel Gibson for Hacksaw Ridge, Dennis Villanueva for Arrival, Damien Chazelle for La La Land, Kenneth Lonergan, Manchester by the Sea, and Barry Jenkins for Moonlight. Mm -hmm. Your your choice there, Paul? I'm going to have to go with Damien Chazelle because... uh, I think that uh, something like that, the full-out musical, the the look of it, the style, all of those things that uh, the director oversees, I think it's just a more obvious, not a more obvious directing job, but it, it reinforces the responsibilities of the director. Uh, I, uh, I agree completely yeah. with you, and I am also choosing uh, Damien Chazelle. Uh, Roscoe's pick? 
Barry Jenkins for Moonlight. Boy, he's he's all over this Moonlight thing, yeah, huh? Yeah, for no? sure. Best Actor. Casey Affleck in Manchester by the Sea, Andrew Garfield in Hacksaw Ridge, Ryan Gosling, La La Land, Viggo Mortensen in Captain Fantastic, and uh, Denzel in Fences. Paul, your pick? I think, you know, this is a toss-up because I think that Denzel has already won. I, this is one of the things I, I, I Twice. talk about. Yeah, that I think people think that people talk about that they don't talk about it all, which is, well, you know, he's already won twice. Like like the Academy of Voters are sitting in a room and having a big committee discussion like, well, you know, he's won twice. No one really cares. That like the NCAA twice. selection committee exactly, for the exactly. tournament. Yeah. But I think that uh, because it's more accessible and I think that because Hollywood kind of loves uh, an underdog, I, I do think this is going to go to Casey Affleck. I concur. Yeah. Roscoe's pick, Denzel. Yeah, and then it's not a it's not a bad pick. No, um, I was a little surprised that he chose that, but yes, he's going with Denzel and Fences. Yeah, I think I think that it's it's definitely one of those two. I think anything else would be a tremendous upset. Viggo Mortensen was great in Captain Fantastic. It was a great film. It was very interesting and quirky and odd, but I don't think it's an Academy Award winning performance by any means. All right, fair enough. Um, moving on, we just have a few more categories here. Best Actress, Isabel Hubert in Elle, uh, Ruth Nega in Loving, Emma Stone, La La Land, Natalie Portman in Jackie, and Meryl Streep. What can you say? There's nothing more to say in, when in, they in print Florence these Foster forms, Jenkins. When they print these forms, they should just leave her there. You know, under the category, <laughs> just leave I think her they do. There. I think that's why she's in the last spot. They just they yeah. just erase the top four. It's and a different a font, people. actually. It's interesting. It's a different font than the rest of it. It's just like they must locked in Ariel there and just. <laughs> it's type it's it it's stuff. in it's in hieroglyphics. Actually, <laughs> actually, she's it's been, actually raised. The texture is raised. Wow. Yeah, she's what been she's been doing it since the <laughs> Egyptian days. Your choice there, Paul. No question to my eye and mind, Natalie Portman and Jackie. I think it was one of the most seamless performances I've seen on film. I think that you never saw her working. She perfectly captured the elegance and the speech and the uh, all of all of those uh, intangibles that were Jackie Kennedy, and yet still infused it with a portrayal that was not an impersonation. Mm -hmm. It was stunning. It was absolutely stunning. I remember uh, Roscoe telling me after he saw the film, he had much the same reaction as, as you did to the performance. This is an interesting category in terms of our picks because we've all picked different people. Really? Out of five. My choice here is Isabel Huppert for L, And Roscoe's choice is Meryl Streep. I think he just wants to see her win one more time and, and see what the crowd does. They'll go crazy. Uh, best Supporting Actor. This is a tough one. Not as tough as Best Supporting Actress, but uh, a tough one uh, nonetheless. Mahershala Ali in Moonlight, Jeff Bridges in Hell or High Water, Lucas Hedges, who played the uh, young man in uh, Manchester by the Sea, Dev Patel in uh, Lion, and um, Michael Shannon in Nocturnal Animals. This is his second nomination now in just a few years. Uh, I would go with, and I think it's the only thing that Lion is going to win, but I would go with Dev Patel in Lion. I think that that was uh, the strongest of what I see here. That being said, I did not see Nocturnal Animals. So I can't weigh Tom Ford Ma film. Michael, uh, Michael Shannon in on that. Well, but. once again... The three of us have made three different picks out of the five. My choice is Jeff Bridges in Hell or High Water. And Roscoe's choice is Lucas Hedges in Manchester by the Sea. Really? Which is a wonderful performance. I mean, any of these guys could, could win and there'd be no controversy or n n no ill feelings. These are all superb performances by all accounts. Um, and your description of Deb Patel's performance now just reinforces that. This is a, this is a good category. A yeah. great, great bunch of guys. Yeah. Best Supporting Actress, as I said, this is a very tough category. Viola Davis in Fences, Naomi Harris in Moonlight, Nicole Kidman in Lion, uh, Octavia Spencer in Hidden Figures, and Michelle Williams in Manchester by the Sea. I will tell you that Roscoe and I both chose the same actress 
I think that I may be choosing the same one, too. I think this is going to go to Viola Davis. Yes, well, now we've, yeah. we've finally agreed, yeah. all three of us. And I think that it really could be either her or Michelle Williams in Manchester by the Sea. I thought Michelle Williams was wonderful in that. I, uh, I, I did as well, but I think that her one big scene towards the end of the film was just, it's just not enough. The, I, the scene with the yeah, two of them I, with I, the pram? I missed her in the middle, and I think that she needed to have one more real appearance in that film in order for the supporting actress uh, award to really land in her lap. And the thing is, the, the performance and the role that Viola Davis does, is it Viola or Viola? Well, yeah. I call it Viola, but you Viola. can call it whatever you want. You're my guest. Um, the uh, It's not a supporting actor actress role. It's a lead role. It's just the only female role in the film. Well, it, you know, uh, her, her, you know, her nomination in the supporting actress category was a bit manipulated in order for it to be viable. Yeah. Um, Roscoe and I discussed that at some length. Uh, best original screenplay. We did adapted screenplay. Let's do the original. Hell or High Water, La La Land, The Lobster, Manchester by the Sea, and 20th Century Women. I would, on this one, I would say that the best original screenplay will go to Manchester by the Sea. Once again, you, I, and Roscoe uh, have selected the same choice. Yeah. 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 And I have one more. Uh, best cinematography, because uh, I like this category a lot, and I've seen three of these movies. <laughs> so, Arrival, again, the, the science fiction type Film, it, it's it's a wonderful movie. Uh, did you I have watch the, I have the DVD at home, but I, 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 I fully yet. recommend it. Uh, La La Land, a Lion, Moonlight, and Silence, the uh, Martin Scorsese film. I would say on this one, I'm going to go with a Roscoe favorite, and I'm going to say that Moonlight is going to take it from La La Land. Interesting. Yeah. Roscoe and I have both chosen La La Land. Yeah. All right, I'm putting these in the permanent archival file in order to review them the next time we have our broadcast, which will be in, oh, I, I guess it'll be probably right after the Oscars. Hopefully that will be it so that we can uh, review these. And as I said, there might be a lovely parting gift for uh, not winning, Paul. Okay. I'm an extra large. I don't know if it matters. Uh, extra large, 17 and a half neck, 35, 36 sleeve. <laughs> Thirty-five, thirty-six sleeve. Thirty-five, thirty-six. Yeah, I have hands like a, like an orangutan. Arms like an orangutan. I just uh, you know I have hands like a tree frog, but I have arms like an orangutan. <laughs> um, I, I've I've one more Hollywood uh, tidbit here to throw at you, and I I have no idea what to make of this, so we can speculate about this a lot. I love a setup like that. Judy Garland is no longer in New York. Are you confused? I am. Garland, who died in 1969, <laughs> has been ensconced in a mausoleum in Hartsdale, New York, ever since. The press has learned that the remains of the Wizard of Oz star was removed from the cemetery uh, a week ago Thursday and placed in the cargo hold of an American Airlines flight Tuesday night from JFK to Los Angeles. They were told that the body will now be interred at Hollywood Forever Cemetery at the behest of Judy's daughter, Liza Minnelli. I think she's finally lost her mind. She just wants to move her. It's just unclear why Liza ordered the move nearly a half century after her mother's death. But Hollywood Forever uh, Cemetery uh, has a slew of celebrities um, who call it home. Cecil B. DeMille, for instance. Two of the Ramones are there. I, 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 that, that might have been the, the key factor. Could uh, be. Bugsy Siegel is buried there. Uh, Rudy Valentino. I don't know why I called him Rudy. I, we, were never, <laughs> we were never really that close. <laughs> Faye Ray, famous for the uh, uh, King Kong film. And Jane Mansfield. Jane Mansfield. Also buried there. This might be why. Mickey Rooney, ah, longtime partner uh, in film of uh, Judy Garland. Sure. After all these years, what could possibly have prompted uh, addle-brained Liza to, to to do this? Maybe, maybe, maybe she bought a dual plot, <laughs> and she's prepping for her own. And she always sleeps on the right, so. <laughs> so they've elected to do. I don't know. It's a very Ava Peron. 
It's very Ava Peron. Isn't it, though? Yeah. yeah. Now, you mentioned Hollywood Memorial Park Cemetery, and you said about you should go to L.A. and you should see all these movies. What you should do is you should go see the movies that they have in Hollywood Memorial Park Cemetery at night. What they do is they you, you can go in, you bring a picnic, you bring whatever, you sit on the lawn next to founder of United Artists, uh, Fairbank, Douglas Fairbanks, Douglas Fairbanks Sr. Douglas Fairbanks Sr., the side of his uh, Mausoleum, crypt, crypt is a giant white wall, and they show movies on it. And I saw Rosemary's Baby there. <laughs> I saw so, the Muppet that's movie so there. so freaky. Oh, it's amazing. And everyone just sort of sits on the lawn, and you come in and you bring you know food. Some people have little hibachis or whatever. The only rule is that if you have a seat, it has to be like a low to the the ground, sure. You know, folding chair, but it's a hoot, and they bring a bunch of porta potties in, and they just you you watch movies. And is it free under the stars? If it's, it, it might be like five dollars or something, but it's the certain certain ones you can't get. The Muppet movie you could barely get in; it was just packed. Well, I can imagine. Yeah, the Muppet but, movie uh, on the side of Douglas Fairbanks, Fairbanks Senior's exactly, uh, yeah. crypt. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I saw some movie there that was um, with uh, Elliot Gould. It was sort of like a Sam Spade type of movie that he did in the seventies. Yes. But what was so cool about it was there was one point where he was he's driving down Sunset and the trees and such that framed the mausoleum were nearly identical to the shot. And it was just wow. like, it was so noticeable that the whole audience just sort of like cheered it when it happened because it was so obvious it was obvious that it was a match and like the sky was the same color and everything it was wonderful could we could we possibly do this in chicago is there a, is there some place where that we would might? we where would we? Well, they're really, I don't know. Uh, we, we don't have There's enough cemeteries. It's just not enough we space. We don't have enough, and we don't have an isolated sort of celebrity cemetery where, yeah. where stars are. Well, I've got to do this when I go to Hollywood. Oh, it's, to it's a blast. Hollywood. It's a blast. We're going to move on to our closing segment, our, our Kiss of Death segment. I think you'll enjoy this one. Okay. This, this segues very nicely from speaking about old movies and Douglas Fairbanks. Uh, David Shepard. David Shepard passed away. He was 76. David Shepard was a film preservationist who restored hundreds of discarded, hidden, or forgotten films by masters like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and F.W. Murnau and uh, packaged rarities for the consumer market. At the end of the Valentino and Fairbanks era, it had been over for decades. Uh, Mr. Shepard, barely in his teens, began buying up old films reel by reel with money that he earned from his paper route. He began searching out movies that had been languishing in studio vaults or private collections and bringing them in for restoration. Now, you you lived in L.A. for years. There's a huge film restoration program going on in, in California. And, and elsewhere around the country, and, and this has been going on for a number of decades now, and it's a huge deal. Have you ever gone to a, a, a film, an old film that was recently at great expense? And uh, Monica's cousin used to do it. Uh, when Monica's cousin moved out, he stayed with us while he was going to school for it, and that's what he does. Well, the advent of the DVD was huge because they, you know, restoring uh, just for the DVD market. But, yeah. Uh, I sat with him for a couple of hours once to watch what he did. It was fascinating. Get out of here. Yeah, it was really fascinating. And was did he do it all digitally or all was he di- all digitally and uh, and you talk about a, a an effort. I mean, sometimes it's almost as though you're going through frame by frame and just taking dust or a crack out of it. It's it's, it's an arduous process. Well, over the years, David Shepard restored or made available many of the silent films now found on DVD and video libraries, including the 12 shorts that Charlie Chaplin made for the uh, Mutual Film Corporation in 1916 and 1917. Yeah. Also, Murnau's 1925 masterpiece, Sunrise, that is a beautiful restoration. If you haven't seen that film wow. in a while, uh, that is absolutely gorgeous. All of the Buster Keaton independent films from oh, the 1920s and Soviet silent films from the same era. Uh, for many films, he also commissioned new uh, musical scores. One of his most stunning efforts uh, that I read about was the restoration of the French filmmaker Abel Gans's La Rue, which means the wheel. And it was originally shown in 1923 over three. Three days 
So it was a pretty long film. Oh my gosh. Speaking of the little foxes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like most time will be. Uh, it was yeah. cut down to two and a half hours for commercial distribution, and the original was subsequently lost. Well, Mr. Shepard reassembled a four and a half hour version from five different prints and released it in 2008. Now, I've not seen this movie. If Roscoe were here, I suspect that he may have seen this at his Cinecon. Uh, yeah, that film festival that he, that he yeah. goes to every uh, every Labor Day weekend. Uh, David Haspel Shepard uh, was born uh, October 22nd in 1940 in Manhattan, and he grew up uh, from the age of 11 in Tenafly, New Jersey. After buying a 16-millimeter projector at the age of 12, he discovered that film rental companies hard hit by television were selling off their stocks, and he began acquiring films for $1 a reel. And there were a lot of storage units uh, in New Jersey at the time. Uh, that seemed to be the place where studios were dumping their their archives because they had no room for them. Uh, and it was treacherous as hell because it's so flammable. They were just they were they were little tinder boxes. They were, yeah. yeah. That silver nitrate would mm -hmm. would well deteriorate. Also, as you say, very very highly flammable. Uh, he was teaching theater and film at Pennsylvania State University in '68 when the fledgling American Film Institute. Uh, hired him to seek out historically significant films from studios and collectors with the aim of having them donated to the Institute for Preservation and Archiving. He persuaded Paramount Pictures to turn over 200 silent features it had in storage in Fort Lee, New Jersey. They were just dumping them. They were just getting rid of them. They were taking up space. Why rent a storage units in New Jersey for these things that apparently Paramount figured no one would ever, ever want to see. Well, he went to work for a company called Blackhawk in Davenport, Iowa, as a head of product development, and it was there that he led the project to acquire and restore Chaplin's mutual shorts, which I mentioned earlier, uh, in which Chaplin's little tramp character evolved from a purely slapstick figure to a rich comedic personality. It was during those uh, mutual Kid, shorts. Kid Auto Races in Venice was the name of the film. Kid Auto Races in Venice, and the, the tramp just walks by a go-kart race in the first mutual appearance of the Tramp. That's know. fantastic. Pinched by competition from the video market, Blackhawk Films closed in 1987, and it offered Mr. Shepard its equipment for scrap value. <laughs> so, so soon after, he acquired Blackhawk's entire film library. So now he owns it all. No one else is really in competition with him because no one else is interested in this kind of stuff. Uh, many of the titles were released in box sets including Masterworks of D.W. Griffith, uh, The Art of Buster Keaton, The Golden Age of German Cinema, one of your favorites. Fritz, Fritz Lang, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cecil B. DeMille, uh, The Visionary Years, Douglas Fairbanks, King of Hollywood, and Georges Millier's First Wizard of the Cinema. Um, he's, of course, famous for A Trip to the Moon, one of the very, very first uh, uh, silent films. Uh, Mr. Shepard, who lived in Hat Creek, California. Hat Creek, California. You can't make this stuff up. He had his fair share of serendipity along the way. Uh, Raoul Walsh's first film, Regeneration, from 1915, uh, sometimes credited as the first gangster picture. It simply fell into Mr. Shepard's lap when a meter reader in Missoula, Montana, contacted him about some films he had stumbled across in the building scheduled for demolition when he had gone in to read the meter. Uh, he called looking for someone to preserve them. David Shepard has said, and they wound up in his lap. Better yet, he told a, a newspaper uh, in uh, the uh, late 90s while he was visiting a colleague in France in the early 70s, get this, a boy rides up to him on a bicycle balancing a box of films on the handlebars. <laughs> he had recently retrieved them from the family farm in Normandy. Among the films was an original print of The Tramp which Chaplin had made at SNA Studios right here in Chicago, SNA Studios in 1915. Uh, you couldn't stage this in a bad play, Mr. Shepard once said. Oh <laughs> That's just, I mean, talk about, well, serendipity is, is the word. This, yeah, guy, really. this guy was always in the right place at the right time. But I guess if you, know, you, know, if you devote your life to something like this. From what, 12, you said? Yeah, from, yeah. from 11 and 12, he, he was interested in old films. If you devote your life to something like this, 
yeah, good things will happen to you. Uh, people will get to know you and they say, hey, I know some guy who would like these old films in the, in the closet, Martha. Why don't we just send them off? And then suddenly, you know, some lost... You're sitting, you're sitting on a gold mine. A, yeah. lost, a lost treasure. Right. Uh, David Shepard dies at 76. I'm sure Roscoe will enjoy hearing that story. It wouldn't surprise me if Roscoe also had met David Shepard at some point. Yeah, because he sounds like festival. he would be the perfect, the perfect guest speaker. At Without those question, yeah. uh, if not once, if not many times, uh, yeah. at least once. So, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because I read an article that apparently Liza Minnelli is looking at restoring the footage of Judy's autopsy. So just in keeping with the moving of the body, there's not enough exploitation there. I'm thinking maybe. Just run that as the as the dateline or something. <laughs> it occurred to me that Liza has not been a well woman for many many years. <laughs> it's been known that she's not been all that well for many years. Maybe she's finally thinking, well, when I go, I I I want to be buried here in Los Angeles, and I'd prefer to be near my mother. Yeah, well, and if, and 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 that's very touching if that's the case. I have one more bit of information for us. Ryan Murphy, who was the creator of Glee and American Crime Story and American Horror Story, he has uh, created a new FX anthology series called Feud. And the first one is Feud, Betty and Joan. It dramatizes the rivalry between Joan Crawford, played by Jessica Lange, and Betty Davis, played by Susan Sarandon. <laughs> You're aware of oh, this. Oh, yes. When they collaborated on the 62 film, Whatever Happened to uh, Baby Jane, which, by the way, received, uh, I think, five Academy Award nominations and, and of course, is a cult classic. Yeah. Well, that's coming up. I just wanted to tell our listeners uh, to look at your TV viewing uh, options and see if you can't find that. Have you seen the, trail, the little trailer for it? I have seen a oh, little trailer it's hysterical. For it. It's just two beauty shots of these gorgeous cars from the 50s just both going to one destination and they both get to the Paramount Gates at the same time and one cuts off the other going in and you just hear, Joan! <laughs> the whole thing. It's right there. It's like, Joan, Joan, you bitch! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know if they can say that on that. And FX. there's actually a wonderful uh, audio clip of, um, of Betty Davis talking about the rivalry. I, I, I heard it online and it's just very funny how she talks about it. She goes... Well, we can we can talk later. You know, she she has a public statement. She goes, but if anyone wants to buy me a drink later, we could talk about it further. Of course, the whole audience just breaks. Of course, up. she speaks very very highly of Joan Crawford as a performer, and as an actor. But there's cool. definitely a, a feud there. Yeah, for sure. Paul, it's been a pleasure. Uh, oh, it's thank been a you for sitting in again on the hot seat. Uh, get better, Roscoe. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, looking forward to having him back very very soon. Again, thanks a lot for your time and uh, your uh, feedback and input. You're a great conversationalist. Uh, lovely to have you. Uh, like us on Facebook, everyone, uh, if you can, and follow us on Twitter, and you can email us at uh, alist at booth-one.com. Of course, we always love to hear your questions, comments, feedback on our show, suggestions for uh, possible topics or guests coming up. Uh, for Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski alongside my pal Paul Strolley saying keep listening and so long until next time.